Just in and so good. Thousands of spring deals at your Nordstrom Rack Store. Save big today on new arrivals from Kate Spade, New York, Nike, Sam Edelman, Free People, and Madewell, starting at only $30. Great brands and great prices on dresses, denim, sandals, designer bags, and more. So rack your look and get first dibs on spring styles you want now from just $30 at your Nordstrom Rack Store. What will you find? Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Everybody, it's your actual wizard this week. Uh, there you go. Um, amazing. And uh, I'm gonna butcher it immediately, but the actual wizard rinse wind, right? <laughs> Did I get it right? All right, you got good. it very right. Good. I don't want to be a wizard, and my real name is Holden McNeely. And uh, there it is. I've been a real wizard this week. Jake, what about you? And I'm your uh, septuagenarian, silver-haired, aging barbarian bruiser, Jake. I'm uh, also with the Jewish name, <laughs> so it, it really works out great. Cullen the Barbarian, Jake Young. Fantastic. And we, of course, have a guest today, uh, a hilarious guy. Honestly, immediately I'm going to start with a compliment. Back when stand-up actually was a thing that happened, and we were all doing comedy together in New York City, probably one of my favorite, honestly, okay, I'll just go, I will say, my favorite person to see get up. For some reason, I was always so excited because Jared Logan, our guest, uh, by the way, I should say his name, um, always just, I don't know, was just so, uh, just blew the doors off of a room in the, like, the, in my style of crazy and weird <laughs> that I just, like, absolutely loved. So, anyways, thank you. Can you can just say he yelled good. <laughs> yes, you see, he it's was true. both alienating and, uh, at the same time, somehow also embracing of the audience. It was, like, this weird, amazing magic trick. So, anyways, thank you for being here. My pleasure, and I'll be your matronly, big-breasted <laughs> old lady witch for the podcast. <laughs> Granny Goodwax, is that yeah, one of their names? I believe yeah. it is. We'll get yes. there. We'll definitely talk about it. This week we're doing uh, Terry Pratchett and Discworld, and this is actually a Patreon-sponsored episode from Jonathan Orms. Thank you so much, Jonathan, who says, I suppose I could always use more followers on my Instagram trying to get some sponsors in the field of metal detecting. It would be kind of nice to be able to travel the world hunting for treasures on someone else's dime. My Insta is Mr. Find It. That's M- Mr. M-R period F-I-N-D-I-T, Mr. Find It. Thank you again for that, uh, Jonathan. All right, Terry Pratchett, the man the myth, the legend. He's let's dead. talk to Pratch. <laughs> let's, Pratch. Let's get Pratchy. All right, guys, because this is this is a big one. I've I've been. This is like my Warhammer, Jake. Like you're incredibly intimidated by a Warhammer. I'm very intimidated by the works of Terry Pratchett uh, for a couple different reasons. I definitely uh, have yet to go through my Pratchett phase. I think this week has definitely put me in a headspace where I would like to at least maybe read like the guards. 
the Watch uh, uh, series of yeah. Discworld. I think my main thing with Discworld and why it was so intimidating was, uh, you know, there are like entire websites dedicated to like where to begin, how to even approach this. It's not a chronological thing. Don't you dare start at the first book. Amateur mistake, rookie. Lock and load, <laughs> idiot. You're going to start at the first book, you daft imbecile? I mean, Pratch, Pratchett himself even says that he didn't discover uh, the joy of act- writing actual plot until, like, book four. <laughs> I think it's amazing that nerd stuff is now to where, like, you read a book? Oh, you fucked that up. Like, you... <laughs> uh, By the way, it's Granny Weatherwax. I'm sorry. Sorry, yeah, you're going to get some. And I, the, 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 the plump one is Nanny Og, who I like better than the other witches. Okay, sorry. Uh, oh, I'll just say this, why I was intimidated by Discworld, if I could, real quick. Sure, please. Which is that I, when I stumbled across it, thought that what I was going to get would be like um, blazing saddles in Middle Earth or like uh, that's what he said he tried to was his he actually literally said he wanted to do for the uh, uh, Western that blazing saddles did for the Western he wanted to do that for fantasy interesting because like I, I thought it would be like I guess Blazing Saddles is not a good example because that's a that's a classic awesome movie. I I guess like I thought it would be just like fantasy with a lot of puns, and I hate puns. There are there are a lot of puns. Yeah, or I thought it would be like airplane, but mm-hmm. with you know magic, and uh, really it's it's so much more than that if you give it a chance. Like it's not like a just a joke machine, although it is also that. There's like a joke in every line, but it's like really deep satire in a way that no one else I think has been writing for a long time. Like, um, like for a while Pratchett was the only guy doing it. So I, I, I dug it the most, but I really had some kind of prejudices about it before I started it. You thought it was going to be the grownups too. Of uh, fantasy genre. Yeah, I guess. I thought it was going to be like, you know, scary movie. You know, like four, like four, the fourth one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, any of them. Come on. Are you a, you're a scary movie one apologist? You know what it is? A the lot of people. guys are needed to happen. It was a really lot of good. people stick up for scary movie one. So I, it's so funny that I know that's Who a bad movie. <laughs> I've seen it. So many people think it's great. So many Tell people think it's great. Tell them to stop doing that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I thought it was gonna be scary movie, uh, not another teen movie, and it's right. uh, it's way better, way way better, way better to the point where I was having little chuckles uh, to myself whilst reading Guards Guards this past week, and really surprised at how the humor was able to hit even even without. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna go ahead and admit because we just did Hitchhiker's Guide not too long ago. Now we're doing Pratchett and Discworld, and I have to admit I am not a big humor prose guy. But if I had to read humor prose, uh, you you can do no better, I think, than Pratchett. I think that his stuff actually translated comically better than, a, you know, a, a Hitchhikers aside, better than most of the humor prose that I've read. Uh, and I do, I do, will say, uh, I have read a Terry Pratchett book. I, uh, of course, being a, a Neil Gaiman fan, I super loved uh, Good Omens, one of my favorite, uh, one of my favorite books honestly probably and you know in the in the long list of, of books I loved and was really taken aback by just just how fantastic the characters were in that world and 
Um, you know, the, the wonderful combination of the two. And that is actually the one that made me go, I want to read Discworld. And then I pulled up one of those websites and I was like, uh, I don't know where to begin. That's your first mistake. Yeah. So I should have just grabbed a random book. Jake, what about you? So I think my experience with Discworld is pretty much uh, for anyone in our age cohort, uh, you kind of stumble across it on the Internet where it's just filling up pages and pages of wikis and fan sites. And it just seems insurmountable. Uh, it seems like this fully, fully realized, fully just plotted out, insane deep dive of a world to just forget yourself into, um, not realizing that it's just the natural side effect of having like 40 plus books of it being released on a consistent schedule for decades on end. It's not like, uh, you know, Pratchett was trying to be, you know, this master world builder. He was just taking these little pieces and just kind of laying down the track as he was writing. Um, and the actual experience of reading any given Discworld book is really easy breezy. Yeah. I, the books that I've read so far for uh, in various forms, audio, prose, comic book, bad point and click adventure game from the early 90s. Uh, really bad, just genuinely bad. Just yeah, we we messed with that on the Sunday study session. It was a lot. Hey, it was better than the Hitchhiker's Guide one. The Hitchhiker's Guide one, I almost uh, destroyed. I I almost became like a classic family annihilator serial killer because of that one. But uh, just having to wait for like the CD ROM to spool up so you can hear Eric Idle just go, "That won't work." You can't do that. <laughs> what am I supposed to do with this? Like, it's just fucking uh, infuriating point and click. Yeah, I think I remember having that game and not being able to get out of, like, the first area. Like, yeah. you know, like, just not uh, not pointing and clicking correctly at all. Yeah, But um, the reading books like uh, Going Postal, small, uh, which talks about, like, this... Uh, like recreating uh, the postal service in the central location of a lot of Discworld books, this the steampunk city of Unk Morpork, mm-hmm. and the the challenges of trying to like you know get people to believe in the system or small <laughs> gods, uh, which was kind of this treatise on just the the ways that religion can get ahead of uh, people and the ways that humanity kind of imposes itself on feelings of faith. Um, to things like the, yeah, Guards, Guards, the Nightwatch series, which is a really just great, like, boots-on-the-ground, magical procedural. Yeah. In, instead of, um, you know, uh, drug traffickers, there's just, they have to get a dragon. They have to stop a dragon from destroying the town. They have to arrest a dragon in that. Yeah. <laughs> um, I will just say, like, on your point about, like, it feeling insurmountable. So I've read mostly the first of each of the series, you know? Because gotcha. there's like several series within Discworld, like the oh, guards, yeah. the mm-hmm. Night Watch, as you say, and then um, then I just skipped ahead to like the 26th one he wrote, you know, just to right. see like, and it you can read it fine. Mm-hmm. Like there was like half a minute at the beginning where I was like, oh, this is part of the death cycle, right? Like where he talks about Mort and death as a character, um, a li- you know, and and there were some characters connected to that, and I didn't quite get their relationship. By the middle of the book, I. D- I knew who they were and it didn't matter. Like I was into the new plot of this one and it was amazing. It's that's a great one. It was uh, the thief of time was that one. So uh, you can just grab any of them. Yeah, totally. You really can't. 
And that's that, it's, that's so weird to me, I think, just as a person who consumes media, who is like a completionist, who, you know what I mean? I think it's more on, the onus is more on me that I, that I see it and I'm just like, oh, well, that doesn't make sense to me. And then the more, you know, I've done research this week and realizing this is all just a playground. It's a sandbox he created that exists uh, as a flat disc on the backs of four elephants on the that's, back of a turtle. That's the craziest thing about the Discworld series. Yeah, yeah. Is that no matter what article you write about, no matter what resource Every single one is like, all right, number one, you got to know about the fucking turtle. It's a turtle planet. It's a turtle elephant planet. And that has nothing to do with anything that happens in any of the books. It's essentially a gag at the beginning of the first book. It's just like him doing like, this is my cosmology, and like, (laughs) but in a way that's really kind of a stand-up routine. And then it never really matters again. I don't think it probably does at some point. He probably has someone off the edge or something. In small ways, in fact. Factors yeah. in, you know, yeah. throughout, but he'll have fun with the yeah, the science and the physics of how this would actually work, and like, can you send someone underneath the turtle to travel to the other side, or like, do all <laughs> this? But like, yeah, for st- for any actual story that involves actual people, this uh, I think one of the I listened to an interview with him. Uh, and it's like, how many times when you read a regular novel, do the characters just stand around and be like, yep, we sure are on a spheroid planet with a magma center. Like, it just never, yeah. it, nobody cares. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's that thing where, like, something gets known for something. I, I yeah, honestly, honestly, that was probably one of the things I was like, I don't know if I want to read about that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. how much of it is about the disc shape? Uh, I probably did think that before I started reading them. Right, right. You thinking it was going to be like the opening of Scarlet Letter, just paragraphs of descriptions of this, you know, like one doorstep or whatever. Yeah, but it, right. it, it really is just a passing thing. I guess we are now over 10 minutes in. It is time to actually give a synopsis of this author and his work. Oh, we never do it up top. <laughs> we never do it at the beginning. Uh, but either way, uh, here we go. Sir Terence David John Pratchett was an English humorist, satirist, and author of fantasy novels, and most known for his comedy in those realms. His most notable work is his Discworld series, which consists of 41 novels and centers around a planet of the same name, which, as we just said, is flat and balanced on the backs of four elephants, which stand on the back of a giant turtle. It's even in my synopsis, even though it doesn't really matter that much. Uh, but either way, uh, shall we get into this? The the life of this this man and then of course also his works you guys ready i i mean i understand it's i it's not what it is but i imagine a baby being born in england already with the giant ass eyebrows and white beard (laughs) yes it is exactly he was born a wizard in 1948 (laughs) in beaconsfield in buckinghamshire england he was a quint quote quintessential example of an only child of a mechanic father and secretary mother. And his parents were quite poor, but he super loved them and they were a really good parents. His mother would tell him stories when she took him to school, uh, which was a very long trip, so long, a lot of long stories, uh, tales told. He said, they didn't know they were incredibly good parents and I didn't realize they were incredibly good parents until I grew up. Parents that stick kids in front of the television by themselves should be shot in the head. Says Pratchett. Classic Uh, wit. (laughs) I love it. Um, Also about his childhood, he said, 
There were plenty of kids in the village, and it was idyllic because we were the last pre-television generation. We went around in a kind of cloud of dust with loads of arms and legs sticking out. We probably never went more than half a mile or two-thirds of a mile from our home, but there were woods and fields, you know. It was magnificent. Uh, however, it wasn't all great. He was bullied at school for his speech impediment. Uh, yeah, he talks about growing up uh, in a very rural environment. Like his mother had to literally fetch the day's water from a neighbor every day. Uh, the wow. only like big electrical device in the house was uh, a radio that it's a so-called farm radio that required like massive battery banks to power them for like a couple of months at a time. Exactly um, like my childhood in West Virginia. Because, <laughs> like, for example, like, we didn't have all of the cable channels. We only mm-hmm. had, like, 20. And we had the blurry porn channels, but you would still sit up late at night trying to, d- to discern what they were. It was just brutal. I, it should be noted that Jared is uh, covered in soot as he's speaking. <laughs> I am. We can see it. Just got done sweeping the chimney. <laughs> Um, so yeah, he's bullied at school for his speech impediments. He's heavily criticized by his head teacher who, according to Pratchett, quote, could tell how successful you were going to be in later life by how well you could read or write at the age of six. Pratchett also said, I wouldn't say I was an underdog, but as a child, I did always feel different. On the count of a bicycle accident I had when I was five years old, I had a mouthful of speech impediments that left me with a voice that sounds like David Bellamy with his hand caught inside an electric fire. The fuck's David Bellamy? I'm looking it up. Yeah. <laughs> I should have looked that up. Do you up think he was talking about Bill Bellamy? Is Maybe there Bill any Bellamy? chance he was convinced? <laughs> Are you talking about the MTV VJ Bill Bellamy? It's um, probably, I mean, that's my going theory. Uh, at the age of 10, he was, however, hooked on reading after grabbing a copy of The Wind in the Willows. Uh, and uh, that that really set set off this whole thing. It, it, he said, I, I just exploded. There were rats and moles and badgers, and they were all acting like humans. And I thought to myself, this is a lie, but what a fabulous lie. After that, I scoured the local library and read everything. I even got myself a part-time job there so I could legitimately have multiple library cards. Uh, he also described Wind in the Willows as, quote, so utterly weird and entirely unexplained, a trait he would later, of course, lean heavily on in his own writing. Now here, we're like, you, you think we're setting up the idea that he was this lonely kid that uh, fell into books and became a lover of literature, and that's what sparked his writing. But really what we're learning is uh, he was completely alienated from his peers and school, thus creating the uh, just burning white-hot seed of rage at the world around him that makes any good satirist. Yeah, yeah Absolutely. Have you guys ever read Wind in the Willows? I have Wind not in the read. Willows. I did go on Mr. Toad's Wild Ride at Disney World. Once, so. Oh, well, you get the high points from that. <laughs> but um, I, uh, my, someone got my baby daughter the Wind in the Willows, and it's like this big, thick, you know, tome. And then you get into it, and it's like written in very proper, I think, early twentieth century <laughs> English. Uh, you know, prose. And, uh, and so instead of her, I read it because um, she can't read yet. And um, it's pretty awesome. And what he yeah. means by unexplained, it's like all of these animals like have clothes and little houses, but you never really figure out what the fucking why or how that's possible. <laughs> you, like, like humans never come along and go, oh, my God, uh, 
a rat with a house destroy it like it doesn't it never makes sense like i assumed that the original wind in the willows does have a chapter dedicated to the company that builds teeny tiny cars the exact right size for frogs well my fan fiction definitely goes deep into that jake and i'll send you um with the novel I just completed. It's it also crossovers with the Fast and Furious universe, and mm, it does. Yeah, I combined all my favorite things, <laughs> but only the bad new video game that just came out that everyone thinks is terrible. Um, There's a Fast and the Furious video game or a Wind in the Willows video game. <laughs> Both. No, uh, Fast and the Furious is apparently horrendous, horrendously terrible. Uh, but either way, Pratchett, after he uh, gets into Wind in the Willows, this uh, sets him off. Uh, one of the big things was. His grandmother actually had a bookshelf, uh, which uh, had a bunch of different works that he went through. His uh, A lot of sci-fi. His favorite authors from that were H.G. Wells, of course, who did The Time Machine and War of the Worlds, Worlds among other things. Arthur Conan Doyle, who did, uh, of course, Sherlock Holmes. And he this was like so important to him. But also at the library, he said... I started with the fantasy, and once I read all the fantasy, I moved on to mythology because it was still blokes with helmets bashing each other on the head with swords. And when I'd read all the mythology, I moved to ancient history. More blokes with helmets bashing each other over the head with swords. And, uh, of course, famously, he read Lord of the Rings in 25 hours. And that is really what set him off down uh, the path of becoming like this massive fantasy lover who I, I always like how he framed it too he was like i enjoyed so much fantasy i just wanted to give the gift back which i thought was cool by becoming a writer and putting out my own stuff very cool uh there was also there was also uh his love of astronomy uh early on he actually wanted to be an astron astronomer he said when i was a kid i really really wanted to be an astronomer <laughs> I have no real mathematical abilities whatsoever. I'm fine when it comes to the numbers, but when you show me a quadratic equ equation, I'm completely lost. What I wanted to do was to stare and wonder at the universe. And uh, uh, lastly, uh, his he we're going to talk about how he's like a major computer nerd later on in this episode. But this uh, is said to be sparked by him and his father being a member of the uh, Chiltern Amateur Radio Club, which... Uh, he even like built his own radio stuff and just got really into tech based off of that. Yeah, he's a he's a very pro science. The books are pro science, although they go into some of the complexities of how science interacts with people. Mm -hmm. But like, I mean, I just watched a YouTube video of him, you know, at some college where he talks about how his religion is science. Like, yes, he's like a telescope is my temple. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he he also he's he says, you know, he's also very vocally non-religious, but he says he was raised with just the morals and ethics of of religion without the actual indoctrination or anything like that. And has always felt like that he's, you know, a I, honestly like doing these episodes you, you there's always some corner of every episode, especially about a white man where we have to be like, and then he, you know, and then, but then he also <laughs> did this fucking fuck shit thing. You know yeah. what I mean? And we got to go into that, uh, calling you out HP Lovecraft an episode <laughs> we're going to be doing in a few weeks that I, in oh. part, am not looking forward to. You could do episodes on the problems <laughs> with the good old <laughs> Howard Phillips. Part seven. We're talking about the cat. <laughs> But with with Terry Pratchett, I'm excited to tell everyone, at least as far as I know, he seemed to be a pretty decent person. 
that, you know, was what he later in life, he'll, of course, fund a lot of Alzheimer's research because of his tragic. Age. Give uh, plenty of money to uh, the Orangutan Preservation Society. Yes. <laughs> he loves monkeys. He will yeah. also he will be lifelong married to a woman. They have a daughter who absolutely loves him. He is surrounded by his family, uh, you know, in his final days and just seems to be an actually good news, guys. Decent, actually decent person, which is kind of amazing. He has this like very, uh, you know, kind of we talked about it on the Vonnegut episode. We talked about it on the Douglas Adams episode. He has this like, uh, I guess, boomer, you know, he has this, I guess, the Jim Henson effect. He has this like almost perfect balance of boomer ideals of like a humanist, touchy feely kind of everyone should do their best and be kind to each other and like believe in science, but don't lose like the magic in this world. This kind is- of like. Yeah, this is an interesting point, Jake. This is tangential, so forgive me. But it's like the boomer mentality. I kind of grew up watching shows for boomers, the Wonder Years, Mm -hmm. watching movies for boomers, you know, the big chill, all that shit. Love it. Dirty Dancing, essentially. All of those things are like boomer movies. And like they had so many great ideals. And then the Internet all turned them into (laughs) flesh eating zombies. (laughs) What happened? The internet destroyed them. Reading uh, Pratchett gave me a, a deep, depressive like sense of gloom about what happened to his generation. Because like, I loved Boomer stuff. I used to love Boomer stuff, and now I can't enjoy it anymore. I, we're going to get to it later. He totally predicts what the internet was going to do. Literally to Bill Gates's face. And Bill Gates is just like, nah, it won't be like that. It'll be totally fine. He's like, no, all information will be held at the same regard. There will be no fact checkers. There will be no, there will be no peer reviews. So it'll just all be on the same level. And he's, and Bill Gates is like, no, our people, the people in charge of that are going to do a way better job than the, the people who do that for written books, works and things like that. And he's just like, I, in no! His, in his no, books, he Bill. created a like a crude analog internet called the semaphores, where literally a f- series of eight flashing shutters on towers placed like a couple miles between each other was like this uh, way to transmit information, including like pictures and various other like, bas- it was basically analog 8-bit internet in this fantasy setting and like so many of his books are about how like the people in charge don't actually understand how it works, how like they'll let it break down, how like it gets abused all the time. And you know, this again, like you said, Holden years before anyone had thoughts of opinions about Mark Zuckerberg. Yes. Yeah. It's, he totally calls it and we'll get to those quotes in a little bit, but now we're in high school. He does clash with the headmaster of his high school Um, But he uh, does have a teacher that supports him with a funny name, and her name is Miss Campbell Dick. And (laughs) Miss Campbell Dick gives him a 20 out of 20 grade on his very first short story, which is called Business Rivals. And she (laughs) also goes as far as to publish it in the school paper. And later, this actually his first short story he gets paid for. Uh, He gets it published in a magazine called Science Fantasy. And yeah, that's that's essentially, and he uses the money to... uh, get typing lessons just to further his career. So just the premise m- of that out of story was that um, because the people have stopped murdering and stealing from each other as rampantly as they did in the dark ages, hell is suffering a um, shortage of new patrons and a uh, marketing guy convinces the devil to open that open hell up for tourism business 
because uh, I believe he's was making a commentary on how amusement park rides are too violent these days. Oh. And so like, yo, like people will sign up to get a hellish torture for just 30 seconds and then they'll write home about how cool it was and how tough <laughs> they were for going through it. Again, predicting the documentary Class Action Park. Incredible. <laughs> yeah, kind of. Price drop. Time to shop. Get to a Nordstrom Rack store today for first dibs on new markdowns. Now score even more, up to 70% off brands everyone loves at Nordstrom Rack. Denim, dresses, sneakers, tops, and more. Plus, get genius deals on jackets, sweaters, and boots for the whole family. Shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and save up to 70% with new markdowns. But hurry, deals this great won't last. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. <laughs> I also love people's early works always show what they were like as like a young man. Cause there's like so many first novels that are like, she was the greatest girl ever, but she <laughs> left me and like as a, as a, uh, well, let's just say over 35 year old man. Now, when I start reading something like that, I'm like, <laughs> okay, okay. And then I put it down because um, <laughs> I don't care. Like, I, uh, uh, I always like to say that uh, I was uh, what they call a nice guy uh, back in middle and high school. And yeah. I will I will openly acknowledge that. And uh, I was definitely not really a nice guy. But either way, uh, let's get into his essentially his start. His career doesn't start actually with fiction writing. It starts as a journalist. He actually leaves school to get a job as a trainee journalist. And um, he at 17, he does this. He. Starts an apprenticeship with Arthur Church, who is the editor for Bucks Free Press, a weekly local newspaper. Pratchett said, there could be no better grounding for a lifetime as an author than to see humanity in all its various guises through the lens of the reporter for the town. All the court cases, such crimes as there were, you got to know the coppers. They told you stuff. For a young man with a pencil, you could do what you wanted, really. And that, that so he just, he's, now it's like, He's, he read every book in the library, and now he's studying the world around him, the people around him. Apparently, too, uh, his first day he saw, yeah, you, you know where I'm going with this, Jake. The first yeah. day he saw a dead body, and it was a guy who, what, slipped in pig shit and died? He, uh, he had fallen down a hole and some and seemingly drowned in pig shit. Wow, <laughs> so, that's awesome. Apparently that formed a lot of his views on death and the absurdity of it all and the character that would later become death. Uh, so it should be said that uh, Pratchett will go out of his way to like give a dramatic or like uh, juicy answer to a reporter's questions and then when confronted about it later, just be like, ah, that was just something I told someone in 1987. Don't, <laughs> don't worry about that. Right. <laughs> uh, also, to finish out his training, he took the National Council for the Training of Journalists proficiency course. And besides playing reporter on the paper, he took on that paper's most disliked job, the children's corner for uh, the children's corner for which there was a birthday list and a little story which led him to writing his first novel. His first novel being The Carpet People. It was written in little segments in this. I think he went by Uncle Jim in this uh, as as the sounds student. right. 
Uh, and yeah, he he uh, he takes the carpet people, puts it together. He even does his own illustrations for it. And he actually it's hear me actually, out. Hear me out. What if amongst the carpet there were people? There you go. There it is. Fighting against what if the they fray. were having little adventures right underneath your feet. Hey, that sounds good, but could it be told to me by a guy that calls himself Uncle Jim? <laughs> <laughs> so, during an interview, uh, he, he's it, he t- or he does an interview with the co-director of a small publishing company called Colin Smith Limited or Smythe, either way. And this uh, this guy named Peter Bander Van Duren, and he mentions he was working on a manuscript, and so he gives him the carpet people. Uh, even he though he doesn't Peter- just mention it, he takes the manuscript out of his bag and hands it to him, which uh, pro-level power move. Way to go, that buddy. That is good. That is smart. And and he also, even though that publisher doesn't even do fantasy, he is so charmed by this work that he ends up saying, I want the book. I also want you to do all the illustrations. So he does 30 illustrations for the work. And it looks really good. He's a good, he's a good little drawer. And uh, yeah, he, this is all kind of his earliest version of what Discworld will become. The 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 comedy is in there, the fantasy is in there, all that good stuff. The taking like worlds and concepts and tw- tw- you know, putting them on their head. It's all it's all a prototype for sure. He also during this time meets and marries his wife Lynn Marion, an art teacher, and they have a daughter Rihanna, and she goes on to be incredibly successful as a pop vocalist. Right. She d- really she starts working with <laughs> Jay-Z's label. She has uh, sex with Jay-Z, and then that's why Jay-Z helps her later. Actually, that's a rumor. And that's what I to, heard. If you want to listen to my pop history episode on page seven about Rihanna, I will dispel those rumors with Jackie and Natalie, <laughs> but either way, that's a different But how could podcast. a woman become successful if she didn't have sex with a man? <laughs> You're telling me, Holden, that woman can make the money with AIA? Woman A-A-A-G- can make good art on her own? <laughs> She can when she's voted the most beautiful woman in all of Bermuda. <laughs> yes. Uh, Rihanna uh, likened her dad to, quote, like growing up in Middle Earth and having a full-sized hobbit for a father. She said, Dad and I often walked around the countryside while he taught me which wild plants were edible and showed me hidden caves, Jake. Oh, I knew hidden you were going to do this. I knew you were going to do this. And pools in the middle of the forest, so it is arguable to say that Terry Pratchett did uh, come up with Discworld while exploring the caves behind his house, you Jake. son of a bitch. Uh, a little this running is not a Miyamoto. He's, <laughs> this is not a Shigeru Miyamoto callback. Uh, Jared, do you know that Zelda was actually came from uh, Yes, everyone Miyamoto. knows. It's one of the most common factoids <laughs> in the history of video games. I actually don't know that much about the creators of Zelda. They, well, he did, he came up with it while exploring. These, there were these caves behind his house. Yeah. And he was exploring them one day. And he was like, I should do a thing about and call it Zelda. You're very proud okay. of yourself. You're very, you feel like you're sharing this very rare piece of information. It's like really important. You know, anytime I'm, I'm trying to come up with a new stand-up bit, I'll, go, I'll just go find some caves. Yeah, you know? just find some caves. Just kind of walk, wander in them, spelunk, if you, you know, will. You know, I like Jared's new hour, but he it's all just cave material. And stalactites. I just don't. don't get me started on stalactites. I, I mean, will say that batshit chunk you added at the at, for your closer is brilliant. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks. Well, it was all inspired by the caves, guys. <laughs> In 1980, Pratchett becomes the press officer for the Central Electricity Generating Board in an area that covered four nuclear power stations and once said he would, quote, write a book about my experiences if I thought anyone would believe it. Because it apparently happened right after the accident on, 
what is it called? Three, Three Mile, Mile Island. Island. And and then and like Chernobyl happened during that time. And then they were having their own issues. So it was just like incredibly, uh, an incredibly like calamitous position to hold where he's just trying to be like, no, no, guys, everything's cool. We're not going to die of uh, horrible radiation poisoning like every week. He, he's <laughs> got to deal with that. And he's also writing sci-fi now. He writes The Dark Side of the Sun and Strata, which were published in 1976 and 1981, respectively. These books were a spoof of Ringworld by Larry Niven. And Strata even has features a flat Earth. So he's already getting to that flat. Oh, there you idea. go. Amazing. And there it is. And now we get into Discworld. Pratchett said... Now, how did I start out? It was to have fun with some of the fantasy novel cliches. It was as, as simple as that. And also, I just built up over the years from all of the random reading I was doing a kind of serendipitous research. Research not knowing what it is you're researching. The nature of Discworld gave me the opportunity to do all kinds of things. I could fit more or less anything into it. By about book four, I discovered the joy of plot. And book four was Mort, uh, which we've already mentioned is, I believe, part of the death. Series, yeah, that's correct. the first one in the death kind of cycle. Gotcha. Which might be a good place to start, by the way. We should toss out some good places to start. Mort is one. We'll talk about the other, essentially the other uh, series uh, that people define, put in, put in different categories. And, and we'll give you those like opening books if you are curious about reading some of this stuff. Pratchett uh, says, Jared, if, mm-hmm. I, if, I, if I can plumb the depths of your knowledge, yes. uh, like uh, that post-Tolkien kind of early 80s 70s like fantasy like world was it like kind of folding in on itself was it kind of just the same things so so at the so so you have new wave science fiction and fantasy which comes about in the 60s and 70s right and that's some of my favorite stuff that's michael moorcock that's like you know all those really trippy kind of writers um zelazny um and then uh, right as you start to get into the 80s um it starts becoming more of the, you know, Robert Jordan doesn't show up till 1990, but you're getting like David Eddings and stuff where it's very explicitly a series. You have to read uh, seven books of it, you know, like. Is that, does that Dune fall into that category? Dune was actually published in the 60s. Oh, right. uh, and he oh, had yeah. been writing them all through the 70s and stuff like that. Um but um, but Dune does fit into it in in a way because we, it, world building sort of becomes really kind of forefront in a lot of that stuff. Whereas the the new wave stuff didn't have a lot of world building. It had a lot of, and f- frankly, like a non sequitur in it in, in in a way that I quite enjoy. But like if you read like Zelazny, the Chronicles of Amber, they're um they're about a uh, family of gods who can jump between universes whenever they want. So there isn't like a economy that makes sense or like right. a civilization. He didn't go through and you know map out like you know everything. Like everything's kind of like uh, whatever came to the author's whim he put into the book. So um. So that's that's, you know, as the 80s are dawning, you're kind of getting out of new wave and starting to get into the stuff where there's just a little bit more verisimilitude. You want, you know, hey, how are these soldiers getting fed? Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, wait, wait, where are they mining this ore? You know, um, but but like you say, Holden, like Dune very much did that really early on. And of course, Tolkien did that really, really early on. Tolkien made sure he invented 
fucking languages, right? Yeah. And actually that, started with a language. He invented right. a language and then he was like, oh, let's put this in a world. Check out our, I believe, two-parter, three-parter on J.R. Tolkien. Uh, we definitely did that uh, like a year or so ago. But yeah, yeah, uh, he definitely so, did that. But then, like, I guess the standard fantasy tropes between Dungeons and Dragons and like all these uh, Conan the Barbarian, like, like it, the average person was now, I guess, fluent enough in fantasy tropes that something like the first Discworld book could play off of it. Yeah, isn't that interesting? So, so I think you're right. I think that fantasy at that point had finally become a little more mainstream and was available in a di- a, a number of different formats and of media, and so that people all sort of had a little bit of a a, a vocabulary of it for sure. Because the other thing about the uh, the books in the 80s and 90s is that they, they get a little bit more dogmatic in what constitutes fantasy. They get a little bit more dogmatic in, like, it has elves. And they're, you know what I mean? And it takes totally. place in a verdant land. Like, um, <laughs> yeah, whereas, you know, in the, in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, fantasy and sci-fi were largely interchangeable. Mm. Um, and nobody called, like said, Hey, wait a second. That's sci-fi, not fantasy. Like, and, um, they were, they had all kinds of weird, different types of worlds. Um, uh, mm. there wasn't as much of a, uh, dogmatism about it. Right now it's just so completely structured, but so that's what he sets out to do is really just make fun of these, these, uh, made up rules essentially that have entered into the fantasy realm. And that is the first Discworld book uh, published in 1983. It's titled The Color of Magic. It is by the same publisher at this point, um, Colin Smythe Limited. And it is one of the only Terry Pratchett books to be divided in what you might call chapters. He he refers to them as books. And this is very rare for Terry Pratchett, who at one point would say he, quote, just never got into the habit of chapters. He also, like, kind of shits on chapters uh, a little bit, saying that they're only good for, like, children's are necessary for children's books. He said, life doesn't happen in chapters, at least not regular ones, nor do movies. Homer didn't write in chapters. I can see what their purpose is in children's books, like I just said. Uh, I'll read to the end of the chapter, and then you must go to sleep. But I'm blessed if I know what function they serve in books for adults. Well, you know, he he can say all that, but like... Basically, his books are written in these very kind of readable chunks that don't uh-huh. go on too long. And then uh-huh. there's a little space before space. the next chunk yeah. starts. Yeah. And I'll tell you something. I think even he would appreciate this perfect toilet reading. You can, <laughs> you can get yourself through a yep. chunk and, and, and the chunk ends. It ends. It has all the beats. You know, yeah. It has an end beat and you feel like you've learned something or you've moved forward. And then you wipe your ass and you're off with your day. I think that's the best way for humor prose because I also appreciated that while reading um, the not what whatever the second Hitchhiker's Guide book was. Hitchhiker's Guide was very similar. It was like two page, very quick, choppy, fast two page chapters. Sometimes it wouldn't even have anything to do with the major plot. It would just be this like interesting, funny little quip about a sci-fi thing, and then you know, or a or a, a science thing, and then pop you back into the story. And I think also good for toilets. Color yeah. of Magic is, uh, I read the comic adaptation of it, not the full book, and it is, you know, you're introduced to Rincewind, who's kind of this slacker, uh, fuck-up wizard, which is already a fun thing that, you know, you didn't get a lot of back then, uh, and, you know, one chapter, he ends up in a uh, Cthuloid kind of ancient, unknowable, dark one's lair, 
where like the number eight is what will summon it. And everyone tries not to think of things that have eight in it. <laughs> he has like a very, uh, you know, he's accompanied by a character named Two Flower, who's like a fantasy version of a Japanese tourist, which is, you know, very 70s, 80s. Um, And they kind of introduces the idea that like Ankh-Morpork and like the area where a lot of the adventures happen is like not so much in the in a fantasy like medieval world, just like they're just kind of a backwards country, (laughs) which is also very fun. And even (laughs) things like uh, the luggage where, you know, uh, Pratchett says that he just saw like a piece of rolling luggage at the airport, which was a new invention at the time. And so his fantasy version of this is a impervious magical wooden chest that just has freaky little feet, like just flopping around beneath it. Mm -hmm. Um, But it is very much told in a, uh, yeah, they just, each not, each chapter is its own little uh, piss take on a specific aspect of fantasy. Yeah. It's a lot more jokey to his first books. Like he, like we already mentioned about plot coming in, not till in book four, it's a lot more like ham fisted and, and uh, just overtly like joke, 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 joke. And then I think the comedy becomes more interwoven into the, the scenes and scenarios like more seamlessly as it goes and a little less like try hard essentially. Absolutely. He does introduce death in this book mm. and uh, has the already establishes the idea that like uh, whenever death speaks on the page, it's in these like smaller Small block caps. caps. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And it's like this because the idea is um, death. Like it is said that when a wizard dies, death personally comes to claim him. And I guess that's true for, uh, would-be wizards, which is what Rincewind refers to himself as. Mm-hmm. And, like, death is already, like, uh, you know, mildly curious and a little bit just like an overworked public servant more than a mysterious, like, force. Well, that's a, another great thing is, like, so once he establishes his cast of characters, they make cameos in each other's yeah. books. And so anytime someone's dying in any of the books, you're inevitably <laughs> going to see those block caps and you're like, ah, <laughs> there he is. <laughs> there he is. I love that's it. That's great. That's great. And, and especially because that pops off the page. So you don't even need to. You could just turn the page and be like, oh, fuck. Yeah, there he is. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, so the book catches on. He eventually gets a call from his agent, letting him know that he got a six book deal, allowing him to write full time in 1987. Pratchett said, I remember sitting on the lawn and a bit like in an old fashioned Disney cartoon. I can see little bluebirds around my head and thinking if I play my cards right, I will never have to do an honest day's work again. It was a moment of pure happiness. And I even kind of I don't know if I have a very specific memory, but I remember that day that I walked out of that. my last day job hopefully i'll never have to return to uh that's that type of work and it is a pretty fucking liberating magical feeling when you're just like i can just do like jared i'm sure at a point you just you were just like i could just do comedy full time you know Mm -hmm. essentially yeah and i just did the math on our friend who was born in 1948 and then in 1987 he could write yeah his own books full-time so he was 39 years old so anybody out there who's like when is this creativity thing gonna finally pay off for me (laughs) you gotta hang in there man you gotta just keep going and try all things he didn't know he was uh doing quote research when he read every fantasy book in the library you know he has that quote we just we just said he was gonna be a journalist and and specific and a reporter and do complete a very different line of work, and 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 again that allowed him to study people and and insert that into his writing. So it's also like 
I always add to that, like, don't have blinders about what it, your dream job is. You know what I mean? Because I don't yeah. think he, he even knew that his dream job was what it was until he was in his 30s. You know, right? Yeah, I mean, there was all these people who will get like so, like focused on their uh, brass ring, you know, to the uh, negation of everything else, and then when they get there, they don't have anything to say. I think. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, am I subtweeting people with my talk by speaking? <laughs> Let me name names: Chris D'Elia, Louis C.K. Joe Rogan. I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm I'm being silly. You did name three of the most uh, angry comment summoning people in the world. So that would be fun. Send your comments to Jared Logan, not to Jake and Holden. Okay. (laughs) Uh, So at this point now, in in 1986, he starts writing at least a book a year from 1986 to 2007. And uh, the, after that, he writes five more until his death in 2015. That is such a prolific uh, amount of output that it makes me so intimidated to even t- try to take up writing. Like, because I just the idea of writing a book a year is completely insane to me. The cover art, by the way, was done by Josh Kirby from 1983 to 2001, and it's fantastic. And then it was taken over by Paul Kidby after that. And uh, there were also several short stories and 15 companion books. But either way, I want to get into these different novel sequences that uh, slowly came came into place as he was putting out these Discworld books. The first one is Rincewind, which we already got into. The book The Light Fantastic was published in 1986. takes place directly following The Color of Magic. And the two books and many to follow center around this Rincewind Jake already really broke that down, uh, the different characters. Uh, also, though, did you mention Cohen the Barbarian in when talking about Rincewind? Uh, I mentioned him during my intro. The, yeah, but at yeah, the very he's... beginning. Cohen the Barbarian, I just want to note, is like his way to parody early fantasy, like pre-Tolkien fantasy with, you know, obviously Conan the Barbarian and all that good stuff. Uh, either way, the next sequence we've already mentioned a couple times already, the death sequence uh, that appears uh, in every, uh, by the way, death appears in every Discworld novel except for the We Free Men and Snuff. Uh, and uh, yeah, his his starts with Mort. It's got its own lineage. Then there's the witches. Pratchett's witches aren't the occult kind, but rather are herbalists, adjudicators, and wise women who can use magic, but simply prefer not to. The They're main my witch- favorites. That's okay. my favorite series. Break it down for me. What's the deal with with the the witches series, which starts with Equal Rights? By the way, if you're looking to get into the witches series, yes. Yeah, so I've read Equal Rights, and I've th- I've read the next one, Weird Sisters, and um. Uh, I need to read the rest of them uh, in the in the in the witches series. The, what I like about it is like, OK, uh, really, uh, for some reason, I've always been fascinated. I had a lot of ants, you know what I mean? And they were like country ants in West Virginia and they like dominated my childhood. So they're these like big figures in my head. And the witches series are like it's a high action, high intrigue, fantasy adventure. And the heroes are your aunt linda like you know what i mean like and the way he the way he you know we like you say turns everything on its head by making those people the heroes of the story is really really funny and so all of the humor flows out of those characters and um they are wise because they are they don't like like all of the things that people do that get themselves into trouble all the politicking backstabbing these women are practical women who know how to bake a good 
fucking pie <laughs> and right, like, right. give like solid advice. They're like old ladies who don't truck with nonsense. And so which you, is it's a uh, massive juxtaposition to how wizards work in yes. the Discworld series where they're all holed up in the unseen university. Uh, everything about them is so archaic. They're literally up their own ass to the yeah. point where like any magical solution it's within the universe. Magic is such a headache that you have to deal with wizards in the first place that like, even though magic exists, people hate it and don't really use it very often. Right. While the witches are literally, yeah, the folk medicine, the actual like get shit done people. Yeah. The people that, I mean, the witches literally go out and save the world a couple of times. It's uh and they do it with like folk knowledge. Yeah, it's pretty cool. But uh, what's the concept where they have their own like uh, version of psychology just called like head magic or something? <laughs> right. And it's really just talking to someone and like using like uh, reverse psychology on them and stuff like that. Yeah. The uh, main witch is Granny Weatherwax. I believe we mentioned her before as well. She generally despises people, but also is their he main healer and protector since no one else can do the job as well as she can, which I think is a great, really paints the picture of that character so well. The like begrudging, like fucking fine. No one else is going to do it better than me, asshole. So I guess I'll heal, heal you up. Yeah. Uh, yeah, for sure. The Dorothy, if you will. Yeah. <laughs> Then you have the City Watch series. This is also a good entry point, I think a lot of people say, with Guards, Guards, which is the book that I took on this week and definitely enjoyed and definitely felt like, boom, immediately in the world, immediately enjoying the humor, uh, and, and but still with a solid plot uh, built around it. And uh, this is uh, to feature the City Watch of the town of Ankh-Morpork and tend to deal with the clash of fantasy worlds coming into contact with modern technology and civilization as the watch goes from three hopeless individuals to a fully equipped police force. And the stories are usually police procedurals featuring cr uh, crimes with political or societal overtones. So the crux of the City Watch series is the character of uh, Sam Vimes, who is this, like, just drunk, uh, cynical, like, just just cop on the edge in this fantasy world. And one of the big uh, humor sources throughout this series is after every adventure, he gets a promotion and he's like further and further up the ass of a very like convoluted society whose guts he hates. Yeah, yeah he doesn't want the promotion because it means yeah. more responsibility. In the first watch book, he's, he's supposed to be like maintaining the law and he's literally in the gutter drunk, like yeah. literally laying in the gutter a couple yeah. times. Like yeah. it's so funny. Rack your look for spring at Nordstrom Rack and save up to 60% on brands you love. Rag & Bone, Vince, Marc Jacobs, Adidas, Joe's and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. Score new dresses, denim, sandals, designer bags, and sunglasses, plus updates for the family and home. Get your spring on for less, up to 60% less, today at your Nordstrom Rack store. What will you find? Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Yeah. Also, I just need to talk about one of my favorite things. 
which is the Sam Vimes um, theory of uh, po- of uh, socioeconomic unfairness. Uh, this is from the novel Men at Arms. And I'm just going to read it uh, because this really encapsulates kind of the humanist perspective of Pratchett, the kind of uh, this cynical acknowledgement that like life is unfair, but this genuine like empathy and hope that things will get more fair if people care enough. Um, Take Boots, for example. He earned $38 a month plus allowances and a really good pair of leather boots cost $50. But an affordable pair of boots, which were sort of okay for a season or two and then leaked like hell when the cardboard gave out, cost about $10. Those were the kind of boots Vimes always bought and wore until the soles were so thin that he could tell where he was in Ankh-Morpork on a foggy night by the feel of the cobbles. But the thing was that good boots lasted for years and years. A man who could afford $50 had a pair of boots that'd be still keeping his feet dry in 10 years' time, while a poor man who could only afford cheap boots would have spent $100 on boots in the same time frame and yet would still have wet feet. This was the Captain Samuel Vine's boots theory of socioeconomic unfairness. <laughs> like, none of that had anything to do with magic. None of that had anything to do with wizards. Uh, there's like a real fucking, like, just relatable uh, goodness to a lot of the watch books to the point where uh, Pratchett would say whenever he would write a book and it would start dealing with, like, crime and, like, intrigue, he would have to actively resist not bringing in the characters from the Night Watch series because mm. it would they would just take over right. any book that he involved them in. Yeah. Next, you have The Wizards. This series, of course, centers around The Wizards of Unseen University. And they do that thing that I love that some fantasy writers do. They did this in The Name of the Wind, but uh, it's the D&D-style magic, but they incorporate real particle physics-type science to to give it that zhuzh that I always appreciate when it's like, oh no, there's like math behind this magic a little bit. And uh, they though they don't have their own specific series of books per se, they are featured heavily in about nine Discworld books, namely the Science of Discworld series and the novels Unseen Academicals and The Last Continent. Uh, one of the most prominent wizard characters is the librarian who, through some unseen accident, uh, transformed himself into an orangutan. Yes. And can only communicate in all the books through the utterance ook and has a uh, hilarious running gag that if anyone calls him a monkey, he will throttle them to near death. This apparently was inspired by Pratchett's fascinations with orangutans. Uh, and he even was a trustee of the orangutan foundation uh, as well at one point in his life. I, I also have to say, like, I, and I don't know why I keep feeling like I have to say this. Maybe I don't. Like, <laughs> that sounds so corny. Like, you're like, <laughs> what, there's a there's a librarian who's a, an orangutan, and he says, ook, ook. And I swear to God, like, the, what the genius of this guy is that he pulls it off. You don't feel like it was corny. And sometimes... You feel like it was kind of poignant? Okay, I'm done. I'm sorry for saying that. <laughs> no, no. But in it's... Guards, Guards, which we keep referring to because it's uh, it's a book we both read, um, there's a, a lovely, hilarious sequence where one of the guardsmen is talking to the orangutan and uh, Pratchett just writes out a full game of charades to get like the information that like <laughs> the orangutan has to communicate what book was stolen from yeah. his library. <laughs> Uh, you also have Tiffany Aching, uh, which is a young witch from the young adult novels of Discworld that appropriately derives structure and concepts from Hero's Journey stories. 
Tiffany is the center of the We Free Men, A Hat Full of Sky, Wintersmith, I Shall Wear Midnight, and the final Discworld novel, The Shepherd's Crown. And that's more for the kiddies. Uh, Moist Von Lipwig, to round it out, is this jack-of-all-trades con man who is tasked with developing a city and solving problems, who is the center of going postal, making Amazing money. Book. And raising steam as I well. loved going postal. Yeah. I mean, they're they're all they're all pretty great. I mean, but you know, the, the thing that he does that makes it work, like Jake, you just made me realize this. Like the the monkey, if it was like a quick joke, would not would be corny. Yeah. But what he does is he explores the idea. <laughs> you know, he writes out the entire scene of the charades and he does it with a lot of these like crazy concepts. Like he sits there and he's like, okay, this is true in this world and I'm going to have scenes and make it matter to the plot. It's not a gag. It is the truth of this, of this world. And so, um, I, that's kind of true in a lot of shit. Like, uh, I mean, I can only speak to stand up cause I've done some of that is that like, you know, there are people that have like quick jokes about things, but when, when somebody is like gets called like, well, that guy's great. It's because he has 10 minutes on this one topic. You, know what <laughs> you I mean? actually, like, you actually set me up for, for my next quote com- perfectly. Uh, Pratchett, uh, had this to say about this exact thing. Take Lord of the Rings, big battle. Hooray. We have a King again. Let's all go home. What happens the next day? What happens is all these armies are scattered around the pl- around the place. There's thousands, millions of defeated warriors a long way from home. The elves will have got their green cards and buggered off to the west. The landscape has taken a severe beating. Who's going to take out the trash? What happens tomorrow? And you never hear that sort of thing. Right. And that that is exactly what he brought to the world of fantasy. It was yes. like this this kind of actually uh, I, you could liken it to stand up comedy approach of taking these everyday things and in his case these same same fantasy concepts and just picking them up opening them up picking them apart right and, and de- delving into these little things that you just kind of breeze right past in, in a lord of the rings or, but by asking cool questions like what happens after yeah. or, <laughs> or or what would that really be like you know yeah. like uh yeah uh another great character i just want to uh point to is uh lord havelock Vetinari who is like kind of uh, the city patrician of Ankh-Morpork and who always shows up in the watch novels, shows up in the making money thing. He's like this almost benevolent Machiavelli figure who like kind of is a big uh, mouthpiece for a lot of what uh, Pratchett like believes a functioning society, how a functioning society should be run. I saw a lot of, uh, a lot of chatter on Reddit about how like, uh, oh, Pratchett is like this great libertarian writer. And it gave me like a headache because like having read it, like, you know, he b- believes in a functioning society. He believes in government. He believes in a lot of things. And really what it is, is um, uh, British libertarianism is not Ron Paul libertarianism. Right. He's, uh, it's, it's basically a fancier word for that kind of just liberal humanist kind of deal. But like the ideal government knows people well enough to like get them to do the right thing pragmatism stays out of their way yeah stays out of their way yeah Yeah, like uh the shortest route between two points instead of the absurdly comical bureaucracy that a lot of governments become absolutely so this is my favorite portion of every episode that's where we talk about the process that the person goes through and actually project really spelled it out in a lot of different interviews uh, and uh, so here we go. Here's 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 straight from the man himself, uh, his his process. 
I'm about 10,000 words into my next book. Do I know what it is about? Yes. Do I know? Uh, I do know what it is about. It's just that I'm not telling myself. I can see bits of the story, and I know the story is there. This is what I call draft zero. This is private. No one ever, ever gets to see draft zero. This is the draft that you write to tell yourself what the story is. Someone asked me recently how to guard against writing an, uh, on autopilot. I responded that writing on autopilot is very, very important. I sit there and I bash the stuff out. I don't edit. I let it flow. The important thing is that the next day I sit down and edit like crazy. But for the first month or so of writing a book, I try to get the creative side of the mind to get it down there on the page. Later on, I get the analytical side to come along and chop the work into decent lengths, edit it, and knock it into the right kind of shape. Everyone finds their own way of doing things. I certainly don't sit down and plan a book out before I write it. There's a phrase I use called the valley full of clouds. Writing a novel is as if you were going off on a journey across a valley. The valley is full of mist, but you can see the top of a tree here and the top of another tree over there. And with any luck, you can see the other side of the valley, but you cannot see down into the mist. Nevertheless, you head for the first tree. At this stage of the book, I know a little about how I want to start. I know some of the things that I want to do on the way. I think I know how I want it to end. That is enough. The thing now is to get as much down as possible. If necessary, I will write the ending fairly early on in the process. Now that ending may not turn out to be the real ending, but the, by the time I, that I have, uh, now that ending might not be the real ending by the time that I'm finished. Uh, but I will write down now what I think the conclusion of the book is going to be. It's all a technique not to get over writer's block. Uh, but to get 15,000 or 20,000 words of text under my belt. When you've got the ta that text down, then you can work on it. Then you start giving yourself ideas. So I thought that was very, very fascinating. That's, uh, yeah, that's, I, 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 I find it very hard when I'm writing something to um, wait until I've got all the creativity down to, before I start editing it. And then that's when you, I, when you were writing and editing and writing and editing and you realize you never get it finished. I think that's sometimes why. So that takes a remarkable, uh, will yes. <laughs> to yes. just trust yourself long enough to get it all out. Uh, all right. We're going to finish up the episode, but we're going to say goodbye to Jared. Uh, I have Jared, to go on a romantic so night for my wife's birthday. Oh, um, no worries. Yeah. Uh, and like Pratchett. <laughs> Wait, how am I going to end this? Yeah. How are you going to end this? <laughs> um, I had Alzheimer's and forgot that I had to go do that. So um, <laughs> I, uh, uh, plug, anyway. plug, plug, plug. Yeah. What are your, what are your plugs before oh, you go? Please. Why? If you like to uh, engage in tabletop role playing games. Please check out Stream of Blood. Stream of Blood, it's on YouTube. It's also on Twitch a couple times weekly. That's the one you do with Henry, right? We do it with Henry. Henry Zabrowski's been on. Uh, a ton of people. Thomas Middleditch, uh, Becca Scott, Ashley Birch, all kinds of people who are in the nerd sphere. Kate Welch, the D&D designer. So please come check us out because we're doing Cthulhu games, vampire games, and all kinds of other fun stuff like that. And are you GMing those? I'm the GM. I'm the creator. I design the world. It's my I'm God. <laughs> Um, I, seal of approval. Jared has GM'd some of my favorite tabletop sessions I'd ever had the uh, honor of being among. So, like, <laughs> definitely worth your time. Well, we'll have to have you guys on. I would love to do it. What, what's the Twitch handle? Um, it's uh, Stream of Blood. 
Stream of Stream Blood. Stream of Blood. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us for I think I think we got the best bits with you anyways out of the I, way. I wanted more and I'm sorry I gotta I gotta scoot. Thank you no, guys. Now we're just See gonna talk about the sad death stuff. So you don't even want to be here for that. <laughs> oh I'm out of here. Later. <laughs> See ya. Um and next I want to talk about Pratchett. Uh, I have another big old quoted quote. And this one's about his the way he goes about creating characters, but I do think it's one of the best, uh, uh, just, he's really great at laying down and he even had a very strong connection with the, um, with his audience. And he would literally, he, at first he was really anal about like writing back to every single person who wrote to him. I think it got overwhelming after a while, but he would always, he would give writers tons of feedback on, on, on process and on how to go about writing character and things like that. And he just is really eloquent and really, Really well, well worded about uh, about these sorts of subjects. So this is him on character. What I always say to people is that when it comes to inventing characters, don't base a character on someone you know. But it may be a good idea to base the character on a type of character that you know. Because lots of other people will know people like that. And if they know people like that, then half the work has been done for you. People say, I know someone just like Granny Weatherwax, just kind of like Jared said earlier about uh, about his aunt. The reader is simply inserting that person that they know into the story. A great deal of character work lies not in describing the characters, but in describing the shape that they leave in the world. How they react to other people, how they face things, when they keep silence, the manner in which they say things. Character does not consist of telling the reader what color a person's eyes are and how tall he is. You do not need pages and pages of physical description to get a character. You can get nearly all of the physical description you need by one thing that character says that makes people think, aha, I know exactly what kind of person would say something like that. Next, I want to talk about uh, Pratchett and technology. And oh, uh, his what a nerd! What a nerd! This is like part of this is God. This is like kind of one of the things that made him a patron saint of like early nerd of internet nerd culture. Like it's it seems like the people that like were the most forward thinking and were the most in tune with their audience kind of met them where they were, which is online. And through these early, like, opportunities provided by computers. So, like, you know, he was there on the Usenet groups. He was there at the TED Talks. He was uh, there yeah, at the dude cons. had a six-screen setup uh, before <laughs> a two-screen setup was even a thing. <laughs> was even the standard for people with computers. Uh, he essentially acquired a computer as soon as they were available for home use. He was communicating with fans via the internet since 1992, as you already mentioned, Uh, You know, this reminds me of the Twin Peaks episode where it just very early adapters to uh, adopters of the internet. He would give personal updates on how different projects were progressing. Like, yeah, he was available to his audience. He also, though, was uh, very skeptical of the internet, as we mentioned earlier on in the episode. And the untruth of the internet, these quotes really, really spoke to me. In a way that I just, I just feel like it's so true, and I don't understand why everybody can kind of know this and yet be so uh, misled by just any different person out there trying to say. Wait, wait, wait! Does the person say the thing I secretly already believe? <laughs> yeah, because then I gotta believe it. Because I mean, like, what are the odds? Right. Pratchett said, "Have you heard the saying, rumor runs around the world before the truth has its boots on?'" The internet is rumor running around the world. It's just amazing how far and how fast something that isn't true can spread. He even sat down with Bill Gates in 1995 and showed concern for the future of the internet. He said, 
Let's say I call myself the Institute of something or other, and I decide to promote a spurious treatise saying the Jews were entirely responsible for the Second World War and the Holocaust didn't happen. And it goes out there on the internet and is available on the same terms as any piece of historical research which has undergone peer review and so on. There's a kind of parody of esteem of information on the net. It's all there. There's no way of finding out whether this stuff has any bottom to it or whether someone has just made it up. Gates assured Terry Pratchett that authorities would check facts in a much more sophisticated way than they did with print. Isn't that interesting? So the next time you think, man, there's sure, why is there no Nazi shit on the internet? You can thank <sighs> Bill Gates, who definitely made sure that happened. I just love that he's saying that there were any authorities at all. Uh, because I would love at this point for there to be some sort of a board that is uh, uh, hired specifically to just make sure everyone knows what is total bullshit and what is actually true, even though it's not like they would believe it anyways at this point. We're too far gone. I hate everything. Uh <laughs> In a lot of his books, he has like a very rigorous free speech um, like belief that, you know, uh, through characters like Sam Vines uh, and Moist Von Lipwig, like his heroes usually do stand up for free speech. But, you know, it's it all it takes is a little common sense to be like, uh, it seems like uh, shit's running crazy right now. Yeah, totally. Uh, but in, in lighter fare, he was also a big time gamer, which I really love to see. And he oh, really loved this is amazing. He really loved uh, story based gaming and quote intelligent and have some depth. Those types of games. Uh, he loved Half-Life 2, loved Oblivion. He used to, and he got really into the mod community, which I think is amazing. Even creating a character, correct? Create he created a character named Vilja uh, in Oblivion, and then her great great granddaughter in a Skyrim mod. Uh, it's the idea. There's a whole interview on a website called The Author Hour, where he just talks about like just the 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 weird beauty of like taking a game that's all about combat and like. The individual like people who for no material benefit of their own just are like, but I want to be a baker. I want to just like be a craftsman. I want like uh, he talks about how he ended up building through mods his own vineyard in the world of oblivion and hired like workers and like makes money that way. And just, uh, you know. Uh, here's a, here's a thing from the interview. Uh, there's an inner world of people giving up their time and effort to perfect some little detail about a computer game for the delectation of others. I hope that's a real word. Uh, I told this to my wife. I said how good the weather was in the game. You know, it's immersive. You feel like you're there. And she asked, are there rainbows? And I said, I don't think so, but I'll check. And wouldn't you know it, someone had taken the trouble to mod for the Oblivion game, Rainbows. So That's now, awesome. when you're standing exactly in the right place between the sun and the rain, you will see a rainbow in the sky. Uh, this is a game about dragons and demons and vampires and bandits, and there weren't any rainbows. <laughs> and now there's a gardening mod. So Pratchett it becomes the best-selling author in the UK in the 90s. He uh, And uh, there's a Discworld convention that was established in 1996. He's the perfect kind of fantasy writer in terms of 
fandom because he's so interactive with his fans. He's attending the Discworld convention. He actually meets his assistant, Rob Wilkins, at one of these conventions. Rob Wilkins showed up as a fan, and they got on because of their shared love of computers, which we, of course, were just discussing. More than 80 million Discworld books have been sold in 37 languages. Pratchett was even knighted. He is actually Sir Terry Pratchett. Uh, He was knighted by the Queen for his services in literature in 2009, and I do love that he would say his greatest service to literature was avoiding rhyming any. (laughs) He had his own sword made for the occasion when he found out you don't get a sword for being a knight. Uh, There were so many other works, though, that he did. Uh, There was also a lot of adaptations. He... He's The Color of Magic, The Light Fantastic, Mort, Guards, Guards, and Small Gods have all been adapted into comic books. Jake, of course, mentioned reading, I believe, God's Gods earlier. Was it good? The, co- the Small comic- Gods. Uh, Small Gods was a recent one. Uh, Guards, Guards. They're all, they're all really good. Yeah, like, what do you Pratchett's think about the, lo- just the actual comic itself? Uh, it has uh, the artwork uh, very, like, uh, it has this very British cartoony style that, like, you know, if you... Uh, picked up one of their humor magazines or like uh, a issue of 2000 AD is readily uh, recognizable. Uh, Small Gods has like kind of a looser cartoony style that's very endearing. Definitely better than the uh, animated movies that they made in the 90s, which oofy doof, yeah. that is some rough animation yeah. by the same company that did Danger Mouse and, uh, and Count Duckula, oddly enough. But uh, those you can find those on YouTube if you're genuinely curious. Christopher Lee does the voice of death, and that's pretty rad. But like, there's something about the animation style. It looks like a little too rotoscoped. It just doesn't quite, I don't know. I found it very unpleasant to watch, even though obviously the Discworld uh, heart of the writing still shines through. You also have BBC radio adaptations of some of his works, such as Guards, Guards Again, Small Gods, some other things like that. Uh, a live action adaptation of the first two Discworld books uh, happened, I guess, back in 2008. And currently in development is a TV series based on the watch of Ankh Morpork, uh, as well as an, ad- an animated film adaptation of The Amazing Maurice and movie, uh, or I'm sorry, and then production house Motive Pictures and Endeavor Content announced this year that there are several Discworld books in the works to be filmed. So we shall see. It looks like the comic books is really the place to be when it comes to adaptation at this point. Hopefully we'll get some good movies and stuff, though. I feel like it could be great fodder for film or television. Uh, The video games that we talked about, uh, the original Discworld game, uh, which was available for PlayStation and Saturn and DOS, uh, the sequel, Discworld 2, Mortality Bites, uh, Discworld Noir, which was this like pre-rendered CG version of the like City Watch, uh, Unk Morpor like universe, those are very hard to find. Uh, they're very even harder to run on a modern computer, and unfortunately, they are all in uh, abandonware uh, rights management hell. So there's very it's very unlikely that they'll be republished anytime soon. Mm. In terms of other works, the most notable, of course, is Good Omens, the collaboration with Neil Gaiman telling the story of an angel and demon, uh, friends for centuries who worked to prevent the apocalypse at the hands of the Antichrist. Gaiman was the first ever to interview Terry Pratchett for anything, and he did that for Space Voyager magazine. They met at a Chinese restaurant and hit it off, obviously, splendidly. They worked remotely, with Pratchett doing most of the writing since Gaiman was super busy with Sandman. Pratchett was more able to take a break from Discworld to make it happen, but they would talk on the phone every day and then go off and write and work on stuff. But he does say he wrote about two-thirds of that book. 
Uh, he also wrote an alternate history novel, Nation, in 2008, as well as five collaboration novels with a man named Stephen Baxter, and a collection of short fiction titled A Blink on the Screen, and a collection of similar but nonfiction work titled A Slip of the Keyboard. Then there's the children's literature, Truckers, the Gnome Trilogy, the Johnny Maxwell Trilogy, Dodger, and uh, he has released several collections of st short stories for children as well. And that is a massive, wild body of work. I couldn't fathom having that kind of output. It, it just really, really blows me away. Holden, you would need at least four more computer monitors to work that <laughs> consistently. I want to see like what that looks like when he's writing on a novel with six c computer screens up. Like I want to see Supposedly, what it is. Supposedly, he would have two different manuscripts open at the same time. Oh and God. when he hit a wall with one, he would just jump into the, the other one. That's fucking amazing. Well, either way, let's get to the sad stuff, shall we? Hey, uh, are we dealing with a beloved figure with like a really empathetic view of humanity and a wry observational wit that like at once judges us for our failings, but embraces us for our potential with uh, an alienated and desperately lonely fan base that s looks to him as kind of this uh, beacon of joy and light in their lives only um, to have it snuffed out way too early in almost a cruel, uh, just uh, just just almost uh, unfair uh, display of how the world uh, wants to break us. Indeed. I'm not going to cry like the Jim Henson episode, <laughs> but. I, I, I'm not just because, you know, it's it sucks that he, it was maybe before his true time or it was a bit early. I mean, he had such a great life. He put out so much good stuff. He was, again, surrounded by his family at home. You know, I, I, I love the fact that his daughter really helped him a lot in his final years to to take over the typing as well as his assistant, Rob Wilkins. But yes, in 2007, Pratchett was diagnosed with posterior cortical atrophy, which is a form of Alzheimer's. After the diagnosis, he becomes a huge advocate for Alzheimer's research and an outspoken support uh, supporter of assisted suicide. And this led to a documentary about the right to die called Choosing to Die. And just really, really... I, and, you know, I think I, I, I agree with his sentiments and I couldn't imagine being trapped in my own body in, in that way. And so I, I do I do think it's amazing that he, if he was inspired by something or if something pushed him like he's going to make a documentary, he's going to donate a huge amount of money to Alzheimer's research. Like, I love that he acts on his, you know, on on his thoughts the way that he does. Like, he really is so proactive, even, even as his body is, in, or rather his mind is deteriorating. But as the disease progressed, he did continue writing uh, miraculously. And again, that is largely attributed to his assistant, Rob Wilkins, and his daughter, Rihanna. And I think that was probably a beautiful way for them to have a connection, to, to you know, be near each other, in a, in a working sense, on his way out. I'm sure that was incredibly meaningful for her. Uh, the final Discworld novel was The Shepherd's Crown, which was released posthumously. Uh, so still putting books out in the afterlife. But yes, Pratchett passed away on March 12, 2015, at the age of 66, uh, actually of natural causes, even though he was such an advocate for assisted suicide. And there you have it. Uh, his uh, assistant wrote from the official Terry Pratchett Twitter account, in the famous death small caps font, at last, Sir Terry, we must walk together. Hell yeah. Yeah. Uh, I it's I feel weird having not really gone into the Pratchett verse before this. Uh, it's really 
Up My Alley, along with uh, Hitchhiker's Guide and uh, so many other humorists that kind of took a very, uh, were at once like kind of distantly observing the world around them, but also had their feet firmly planted on the ground. It, again, makes me sad about what, yeah, like we talked about with Jared before, makes me real sad about what the fuck happened to boomers when that they're capable of so much. Like, <laughs> yeah, I, he, he brought up such a good point with that. And it's so, but he really was ahead of the game on that. And I think that that's the sad reality with what we refer to now in, in a negative connotation as boomers is that is that they 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 weren't ahead of the game on that. And, and for some reason... People are now online just believing everything that is stated as fact and whatever your truth is, is being delivered to you completely differently from somebody else's truth via Facebook and things like that. It's it's really sad. And I, uh, I, I it's interesting how the Kurt Vonnegut episode as well. We talked about this this sort of thing where he really called it like it was, and he really predicted a lot of very terrible things that are happening in our current reality. But this isn't a political podcast, damn it, Jake. This is, this is, uh, please. Uh, in 2003, uh, the BBC had a massive uh, nationwide poll about the greatest works of British literature ever made. And Pratchett was uh, tied with Charles Dickens with the most entries on the list, with uh, 10 of his books being in the top 200. Uh, the highest ranked were uh, Mort and Guards Guards, hitting 65 and 69th, nice, in uh, the total rankings. Uh, in an interview, Pratchett said that he would have gotten higher, but he wrote too many damn books. <laughs> so all of his fans, like, basically spread the vote to whatever their particular favorite book was. Oh, of course. Uh, all right. Well, I think that does it. That is our episode on Terry Pratchett. Uh, thank you again to Jared Logan. For joining us today, I think that actually was a fantastic uh, addition, really adding a lot. I, I want to now pick his brain more about the history of sci-fi and fantasy, and maybe we'll do that uh, for like a bonus episode or something sometime. But we hope to have him back at some point. I hope that he does invite us onto his uh, uh, tabletop the RPG stream of stream. blood. Stream of blood. Uh, thank you again for listening. Check us out if you'd like to support us further. Patreon.com forward slash whizbrew. Uh, we do bonus episodes every single week for just $5 a month. Check me out on twitch.tv forward slash holdinators ho. I'm doing Monday, Tuesday, Friday night streams. I had a bunch of fans pop in on my last stream to say hello and it always warms my heart. So catch me on there, y'all. Thank you so much. Jake! Hey, if you happen to have wandered onto patreon.com forward slash whizbrew, you know, there, we have a Discord tier where every week we sit down with you guys and uh, you help us study on the Sunday study group. We engage with whatever an upcoming topic is, whether that's a movie we end up watching together. Uh, we play video games together and it's full video, full chat. Like you are talking to us, you are helping us through it. Um, so it's genuinely a great hang and a great way to start the week off. So again, patreon.com forward slash whizbrew and get all those good, good bonus tiers going. Uh, and you can just follow me on Twitter at BestJakeYoung, and I definitely post chunks from the week's research, post jokes, post internet farts, all the great things, uh, so you can catch me there. Hell yeah. Oh, and before I forget, shout out to Sean Aitchison for helping us do with research assistance for this week. Uh, freelancer extraordinaire, fantastic to work with. If you are an editor, if you are a content producer, if you have it in your heart and need someone to make good things about nerd shit... 
Definitely check out Sean Aitchison. Uh, you can find him on Twitter at Sean Eight Number Eight Your Son uh, on Twitter. Thank you so much again for your help this episode. All right, will do. And always remember, never stop bruising and keep on whizzing. This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors. You can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. Rack your look for spring at Nordstrom Rack and save up to 60% on brands you love. Rag & Bone, Vince, Marc Jacobs, Adidas, Joes, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. Score new dresses, denim, sandals, designer bags, and sunglasses, plus updates for the family and home. Get your spring on for less, up to 60% less, today at your Nordstrom Rack store. What will you find? Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.